Before we get started, you should probably know that the following podcast contains strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Also, it will almost certainly contain spoilers. Welcome to episode 17 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I make disgusting films. And joining us tonight, you know him best as the director of the Shudder exclusive film Ruin Me, it's Mr. Preston DeFrancis. Preston, hi! What's up guys? Thanks for having me. Ah, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you for doing this, taking the time to come on and chat with us about, uh, yeah. A very interesting, a very interesting choice and a very timely choice. Very timely. Absolutely. I, I actually, I was really inspired when you guys reached out. It was right after the 20th anniversary yep. of yep. the release of Halloween H2O. Yep. And on, on that day... You guys, I, I know you know Ryan Turek of the Shockwaves podcast yeah, and yeah. A, a, an executive at Blumhouse. He's working on the new Halloween film, mm-hmm. and he, he runs this event, Slashback Video, and he had tweeted, I, I guess, uh, that August 5th was the 20th anniversary of Halloween H2O and the 30th anniversary of the remake of The Blob. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Okay. So he had tweeted back to back about both of those anniversaries, okay. and to follow up on that that tweet, he he sort of uh, uh, he self proclaimed he was going to be old man Turk for a second, and uh, he he was frustrated that the Blob had received some some praise but not much response, and Halloween H two O the tweet about that received. Tons of fair <laughs> to negative comments. Okay, okay, okay. And I have always had a deep love for this movie for some reasons that I that I'll you know I'm sure we'll get into as we're talking. And I have felt that pushback amongst fans and 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 other filmmakers, and it's never something that I fully understood. And so I was happy to rewatch the film and try to look at it with fresh eyes. And I can't wait to talk to to you guys about it so we can so we can try to work through all this together. Um, well, and, you, well, yeah. you may very well get some pushback tonight. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see how this how this pans out. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Preston, Preston, what we normally do lead with is just kind of like a little bit about kind of like your backstory with the film and kind of like why like you've got the affection for it that you do, kind of how you came across it and all that kind of thing. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So when I was growing up, I'm from this little town called Wheeling, West Virginia. So this this is a town of about 30,000 people in an area of the states known as the Rust Belt, uh, <laughs> where there's it was once uh, big economic centers, um, and it's been on a slow decline since uh, the 60s, basically. So th- these are small towns, not a lot to do. And for a young kid like myself who loved movies, who loved horror movies, not a lot of um, direct uh, opportunities to engage with, with that stuff. Right. Um, so what I did is I, I would host movie marathons in my parents' basement. <laughs> nice. And we sort of settled into this groove where we would do different things all the time, but we had, we had this tradition where 
every year in June, we would watch all the Star Trek movies. Right. Every year in August, we would watch all the Friday the 13th. Okay. And every year in October, we would watch all the Halloweens. Right. And so this probably started when there were five Halloween movies. Okay. Right, okay. So right. I would watch the first five, and then the sixth was added, and we would watch the sixth. By the time Halloween H2O came out, that was around the time that I was graduating from high school. Uh, but I was still doing these movie marathons. So I had a huge love and respect for the franchise. So uh, this was also, this was 1998. This was when the internet was first starting. Okay. <laughs> yes. And I uh, would frequent the sites uh, about these movies. Uh, and I believe it was a site that still exists today, HalloweenMovies.com, was sort of the imminent uh, Michael Myers resource on the internet at the time. Very primitive stuff. And they somehow had worked out a thing with the studio where they encouraged people to do opening night parties to celebrate Halloween H2O. Okay. And if you signed up to be a host of a party in your city, they would send you some free stuff, some free giveaways to like give out to other people who came to the party. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I logged on and I was going to sign up to be the host of the party in my little town of Wheeling, West Virginia. And I was shocked to see that someone else had already signed up. <laughs> oh, okay. You saw. I was like, this. This is crazy. There's like in this tiny town, somebody else is a big enough fan of this. So I reached out to that person. And I was like, hey, let's let's do it. Let's do this opening of my party. I'm excited. And uh, he was like, yeah, this is going to be cool. And then, you know, a few weeks went by and he wrote me back. He, he, he emailed me back and said, you know, no one else has has written to me. So it would just be Aww. us two guys looking at each other. So how about this? I, they sent me this the free giveaways meet me at the screening and I'll give you half of what I'll give you some of the stuff they gave, you know? And so I saw Halloween H2O on opening. I believe it was a Friday night, uh, the seven o'clock slot in my tiny hometown, but it was a packed audience. Uh, and I met up with this gentleman whose name I escapes me now, (laughs) but, and I, I still have it. The giveaway was a piece of film from the movie, uh, uh, and and a little piece of the film. And I still have it, and I treasure it. That's very wow. cool. Yeah, that's that's one of, that's one of the best backstories that we've heard. I think. I think so. Hell yeah. Um, see, when you were when yeah. you were when you were talking about the other guy, I was really hoping that you were going to be like, and that man was Ryan Turek. Uh, <laughs> I I wish the story had that cool twist. Hey, maybe it was, and I just didn't know it. Yeah, who knows? You know? maybe, maybe that's the name that's escaping yeah. me right now. Who knows? Uh-huh. I was also hoping that it was one of the guys from your kind of horror movie marathon nights had gone off on his own and tried to start like a splinter group. I love the storytellers in you guys. You're, you want the plant and the payoff. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, I mean, this is cool because obviously um, this is coming from... Like, so obviously you've chosen this film, which has kind of got a middling reception over the years, but it's coming from uh, someone who obviously has kind of like a fairly rich heritage with the franchise and a lot of affection for what came before. As do I. I have, mm-hmm. a, I have a rather large Michael Miles on my forearm. Excellent. But uh, certainly, yeah, I also have a, a, a great love uh, for the franchise. I'll get into where I, where I fall down on Halloween H2, obviously, as we progress. On, yeah. um, suffice to say, at this point, I have a massive love for the franchise. Now, one thing that we do every week, and I know that you've listened to a couple of episodes, Preston, so you might know what's coming mm-hmm. next. But um, every now and again, uh, people listen to this 
show without having seen the films. Obviously, we generally recommend that people do, but sometimes people do, and that's fine. But what we do now is we put 30 seconds on the clock and give you that 30 seconds to relay your best attempt at a potted synopsis of the film. And you want the, it's not just a logline, you want beginning, middle, and end, the whole thing. As much as you can feasibly fit into 30 seconds. Yeah, certainly, yeah. certainly like, you don't have to see it right to the conclusion, but as much scene setting as you can do. Yes, So if, okay. I, can, if I count you in, you get to go? I'm good to go. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Uh, Dr. Loomis, the doctor who cared for Michael Myers, uh, his nurse's uh, 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 studio is robbed, and uh, uh, it seems that Michael Myers is responsible because he's looking for Laurie Strode. We cut to Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, but now she's taken on the persona of Carrie Tate, where she is the head of a, of a posh school in Northern California. Uh, her son is celebrated. Has recently celebrated his seventeenth birthday, which was the age Time. Laurie was. And Time. Oh. No. Oh, wow. Oh, th 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 that th was brutal. Thirty seconds is short. Yep. I, that I, is short. I've been on the receiving end of this, and it, uh, it is quite difficult. It is quite difficult. I did terribly. Um, I, I was going to say, yeah, that's, um, this, uh, that wasn't in our best attempts. Um, a lot unfortunately, of... Preston. Right. Let's jump into this thing. Let's. So, um, straight in, we're in Langdon, Illinois. Yes. We find this out, like, we find this out in intertitle form. Um, October 29th, 1998. Now, as you said, it's the, nur the nurse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Same nurse. Mm -hmm. um, nurse Marion, played by Nancy Stevens. She, uh, obviously, is the nurse in the car at the very beginning of John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, and yeah. also in Halloween 2. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, she uh, is still a nurse. She's moved on to caring for Dr. Loomis, who has now uh, sadly departed this mortal coil, as we know. However, she's kept mm -hmm. his room exactly the same, kind of like a weird shrine. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so, it's a weird shrine, and, and, but it, it provides perfect uh, the opportunity for the camera to catch all the details <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen the other Halloween movies so we can get caught up. So this shrine is per the perfect source of exposition for the audience. It Absolutely, is, yeah. and that... Uh, the whole room pretty much is uh, is showed to us in montage over the credits with some pretty heavy-handed Donald Pleasance dialogue. It's not, in fact, that is a sound-alike. That is not Donald Pleasance actually giving that dialogue. I am being schooled. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they they uh, I, I guess they couldn't find a clean uh, recording of the that dialogue, so they they brought in a sound-alike to mimic. Well, that's a pretty good job. It is. That's a pretty, it is. That's a pretty yeah. good job. But the film kicks off with a... And I'll talk more about this because it irritates me and, and the whole <laughs> franchise. Pumpkin getting stabbed with the biggest butcher knife you've ever seen in your life. The whole franchise is plagued with ridiculously oversized kitchenware. Where like, where like, as, as in like, what, as in, why would you have a knife that size if you weren't just going to use it to murder someone? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's... It, movies are, are better than life. That's the thing. That, that's the thing that you got to remember that... That you know that that the Halloween franchise is is not a reflection of life. It's 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 better than our lives. It's also it's, a, it's also it's, it's also larger in every sense of the word. Larger than life in every yes. respect. Well, yes. Well, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's something that annoys me in all the films. But yeah, we've got so we've got um the nurse. I'm sorry, I don't know her name. Marion. Marion, thank you. Um, coming home and you get kind of like a, a, a pretty good a pretty good bit of like 90s foreboding when mm -hmm. she turns up and they you know the smashed porch light and the shot of the foot and the smashed glass and stuff. Sets the scene kind of nicely. Mm -hmm. And she, like, reasonably savvy, doesn't go straight in there. Well, you think if you've got a, a shrine to Michael Myers in your house, you're probably a little bit alert. You know, it's like, it's it's 
kind of again it's a little bit smarter than because when you see something like this in a horror film you kind of assume that they're going to blunder straight in there and while she doesn't blunder straight in joseph gordon levitt's about to yes so i i think that both of these things both of the things you just said point to this movie being a direct progeny of scream so yeah, i yeah. i think a, a pre-scream slasher movie she would have gone right in also in a pre-scream slasher movie you wouldn't have had joseph gordon levitt yeah. So, yep. <laughs> so th- this is like uh, we're showing that the characters are now smarter, and we also have we also have Joseph Gordon-Levitt because now we're casting TV actors in our in our slasher movies. So, so really a product of its time. I, I, and, and as I'm sure sure you guys know, this movie wouldn't have existed if it hadn't been for the huge success of of scream this oh, it, it, you know it was and, and i think just right there you you see how scream impacted slasher movies with those two things absolutely so yeah so they go next door um really funny really funny bit of dialogue okay here i thought like um and i believe it's it's marion that's smoking in right. the house yep. and joseph gordon levitt's kind of like sidekick friend I'm pretty sure it's him. He's like, oh, hasn't anyone told you that secondhand smoking kills? And Marion's like, yeah, they're all dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great joke. But um, yeah, so uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt goes in there, like kind of hockey stick in hand, kind of doing that classic talking non-specifically to the person hiding in the house thing. He meets a... Pr- uh, it's off camera, but um, I'm not going to lie. I mean, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty gruesome, pretty gruesome death for uh, what's effectively a child character. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah something i've always liked is that uh he steals her beer and then wrecks her kitchen and blames it it on the burglar or the the perceived burglar yep again very very scream like touches you know very very, where these these characters are snarky and clever and 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 not and not just bumbling straight forward but having sort of a, a take of their own on on the things that are happening I get, I get. You seem to be quite um, knowledgeable about this. Was there not some involvement from Kevin Williamson in this? Yes, he did. He did a rewrite of the script. the The original writer that they had hired, they were planning it originally to be like a B a B movie sequel. They were going to do like direct to video or right. or a small theatrical release. And uh, they that original writer, once they got Jamie Lee Curtis, rewrote it to add the character. Uh, and then I think they brought in Kevin, who was, of course, the hottest horror comedy writer at the at the moment, yeah. um, at that moment, to 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 punch it up. Speaking of scream, obviously the writer of scream. Mm-hmm. Um. So Preston, so obviously rewriting it to bring Jamie Lee Curtis and Laurie into it is, you know, when you consider the film that we ended up getting, kind of a pre- it must have had a pretty seismic impact on the story as it was because obviously kind of she kind of becomes a central character do you have do you have any idea what it was originally he said that it was set at the the girls school or or yeah it was an all girls school that that uh was the setting and there was a copycat michael myers killer okay and that was revealed to have been this is how far down the road they got on this that the nerd character uh charlie i think his name yeah, is yeah oh, yeah yeah, yeah. That guy was cast to play that character, and he was going to be revealed to be a Michael Myers copycat killer. Oh, right. Um, and then the real Michael Myers came back and dispatched him. This, this, all of this information comes from the Scream Factory release of Halloween H2O. There, there is an hour-long making-of documentary, which is great. 
So that check that out if you want the, the prime source for these cool tidbits. Oh, that is that is interesting. That is good. Yeah, 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 like, yeah definitely. Um, wow, pretty huge turnaround. Um, eventually we do. Eventually we do lose Marion in what is a pretty credible struggle on her part, but also from an from an effects perspective, a pretty good throat slash. I think. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. People always put up a good fight against Michael. He's forever getting hit with stuff and stabbed and shot, and people generally put up a decent fight against him. I think that's one of the things that's cool about him is that yeah. he has maintained a little bit of the humanity that he maybe can be hurt, unlike you know some of the later jason stuff you know where he's <laughs> utterly unstoppable it it feels like maybe you actually have a chance against michael yeah there's a there's a fallibility to him mm-hmm. which is nice it's actually i hadn't considered it is. I, I hadn't considered that at all but actually that is really uncommon isn't it and i think that the fact that he keeps the, the fact that obviously like most of the time he kind of powers through makes him look more indomitable as well yeah it's worth mentioning at this point and i know you mentioned that uh joseph gordon levitt gets uh killed off but he gets an ice skate in the face which is a, a lovely little gag um, which you don't see sadly it would have been nice to to have seen it but uh yeah it looks, yeah. still looks pretty good holds up yep agreed also worth mentioning steve minor the director on this he's got a bit of a slasher movie he's got some real slasher movie credentials behind him i believe he did parts two and three of friday the 13th he did he absolutely yeah. did um so this isn't his first rodeo yeah, it is not he had some good street cred coming in, but a far less, um, a far less of a body count than than those other. Far films. less of a body count for sure, and I know, and I know that that's one of the issues that a lot of people have with this movie, is is the body count is pretty small, and as you mentioned, some of it is even off screen, like the Joseph Gordon-Levitt mm-hmm. ice skate to the face. Seven kills, two off screen. Wow, that's your fin- yeah, that's, that's small. That's your final score right there. I, I don't understand the. Uh kind of the animosity or the like disparagement people have for off-camera kills though because i think that the kind of the reveal can be just as good or just as jarring or just as shocking i I would agree and i think that the one-two punch that you get here of her finding joseph gordon levitt's character with the ice skate through his face and then immediately opening the door and the other guy just immediately falling in and landing on her i think that like that is as effective if not more so than if you'd seen the two of them get murdered yeah true True, because we experience it more from we're grounding that whole opening sequence from Marion's yeah. perspective. You yes, know? and so would it have felt like less? It would have felt kind of cheap if if we had cut away and seen those deaths from, I guess, Michael's perspective, from the from the characters themselves' perspective. So keeping it keeping us with her, I think, I think is a it's a more mature artistic choice. I agree. I think that's fair. And then, um, yeah, after the credits, which, as we discussed, is kind of an ex- um, an exposition bomb. Well, while the credits are rolling, let's take a minute to discuss the cast in this, because it's a pretty packed cast. It's an of, interesting cast, of for sure. recognisable people, and frankly, some of them quite famous now. Mm-hmm. Of course, Kevin Williamson, in addition to writing Scream, was the creator of Dawson's Creek. And we yes. have yeah. Michelle Williams <laughs> yeah, in the course. cast, who now is, of course, an art house darling, but at the time... She was, you know, Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I was very struck watching this time by how much Dawson's Creek DNA I felt in the movie. Uh, <laughs> Michelle Williams, but then also through some of that, some of that Kevin Williamson dialogue. Because if you remember, the thing that everybody talked about with Dawson's Creek was, oh, the teenagers are talking in this super 
heightened way with this crazy, sophisticated vocabulary. And you see that in this movie. And when we get, I, I noted a couple of my favorites when we get to them. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. We also have, uh, we've got Jodie Lynn O'Keefe in there as well. And Adam Hanbird, obviously, who was, uh, he plays Charlie. He was in like, Little Man Tate and Jumanji. You've got LL Cool J. Yes. Rapper <laughs> LL. Elevating things immensely. <laughs> he's he's brilliant in this. He, he cracks me up. Yeah, he is great. <laughs> yeah. Um, we can get to that, but he is. And also, and um, yeah, and introducing Josh Hartnett. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting. It's amazing. It's amazing. I love I love the moment when LL Cool J tells him to comb his hair. <laughs> it's like he's speaking for all of us. He does have ridiculous <laughs> hair. Uh, and he, um, he does. It must be a different time. It's definitely, well, it's definitely a different time, but he's rocking a pretty strong monobrow game. <laughs> I... <laughs> You wouldn't get away yeah. with that now. You wouldn't be allowed that. I think that, like, obviously, like, like um, post-credits, you, you kind of get your first look at Josh Hartnett's character, John. Mm-hmm. And, and the biggest shot you've ever I was, seen. I was going to say, it's just everything about it is just, it's uh, it's the most 1998, the most 1998 aesthetic ever, just in oh here and in, yeah, his giant shirt yeah. and like, stuff. Yeah. Now, I got to take just one second and talk about one other thing that happens during the credits. Oh, yeah, okay. The rearrangement that John Ottman did of the John Carpenter Halloween score, oh, yeah. the, or- the huge orchestral version of that, I just worship it. I think it's so cool. It makes it, it takes what we love and is familiar about it and makes it epic and huge. We actually, um, me and Andy watched this together a couple uh-huh. of years ago, and uh, yeah, Andy, you commented on that as well, actually, yeah. didn't you? That's mm-hmm. in, like, the, I, th- I think the the score all the way through, especially the kind of recurrences of the Carpenter stuff and the way that it's reworked, is all really good. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But yeah, um, so we meet, we, yeah, we meet Josh Hartnett at this point, or John, should I say? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. who's having a disagreement with uh, his mum. Yeah, uh, we'll call her Laurie for the sake, obviously, of, for like, the sake of argument, but she's yeah. obviously going by a different name, as we know. Um, she is in hiding, essentially. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're discussing basically whether or not he's going to go to... Yosemite. Yosemite. Yeah, there's a school trip. He's not allowed to go because she's... And the other piece of information, which is really key that is planted here, that we'll, we'll come back to later, is the fact that it was just recently his 17th birthday. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That That's is great. important. That yeah. is important. Mm-hmm. I think that... Because I remember when we were watching this, I thought, like, the way that John talks to Laurie, he's being kind of, like, pretty rude and pretty kind of angry and stuff, but I think that the way that his character is written is probably a reasonable representation of a kind of frustrated teenager kind of thing, because obviously you can, Mm -hmm. like, you're getting this read pretty early on that he's had this kind of sheltered existence, and it's because of this kind of protective thing from Laurie, because what seems like it's kind of informed by her experiences. And I think that when you're watching this as an adult, you're like, wow, he's being kind of, like, pretty aggressive and pretty rude and stuff but also you think about what you're like as a teenager it's probably a reasonably convincing and a kind of like fairly grounded depiction of what a teenager would be like in that situation yes and in fact this is one of my dawson's creek style lines here he says your overprotection and paranoia is inhibiting my growth process (laughs) (laughs) yep there we go there's the first one (laughs) yep yeah, good uh, one. Yeah. That, oh my god. Yeah, that's. Uh, I am so happy you wrote that down. My mum would have told. My <laughs> mum would have told me to fuck off if I said that to her. Yeah. 
That's amazing. It's inhibiting my growth process. Fantastic. Um, yeah, then at this point, you can you kind of get kind of like crash coursed in all your kind of main protagonists. Yeah, and, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously, you meet uh, uh, Michelle Williams. She's uh, the girlfriend of... Uh, John. Of John. Molly. Uh, Josh Hartnett. Molly, thank you. And uh, Charlie, Adam Hanbud, and Jodie, Jodie Lynn O'Keefe are also a couple. Not the most believable on-screen couple I've ever seen. Yeah, I had a note about that here, actually. He seems to be coded as, you know, a nebbishy, milk-toasty nerd. Yeah, and yeah. she's quite beautiful and glamorous. And she just seems really, really taken with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's like I, I wish that that was how secondary school had been for me. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he's doing well. So this is a kind of interesting thing, or it kind of sows some seeds for something that's going to be interesting later, when they're kind of talking about the fact that for whatever reason, none of the four of them can go on the Yosemite trip. Well, so that's not kind of like... that's not strictly true. Okay. Uh, it's not that none of the four of them can go. They um, With the school being empty, they want the time to themselves to run wild. And uh, I think uh, at one point, Charlie says something about orgiastic rituals or something like that. I don't know, something, something stupid along those lines. Right, but, yes. Uh, I think mm-hmm. they're planning some kind of big, sweaty, drunken fuckfest. I like the fact that that's obviously, but it's, it's always a seed for the fact that they're kind of, they're doing this as an alternative to going to yeah. Yosemite. But also, like, eventually, obviously later, and it's jumping ahead a little bit, but... Um, Laurie kind of relents and tells him he can go. And at that point, mm-hmm. he doesn't, like, at that point, the kind of the alternative plan that they'd come up with has kind of cemented itself and he doesn't really want it. Right. And I think that that's kind of interesting because it's like, obviously, it's the f- it's the first time that she's kind of caving and trying to trust him with something. Yeah. And he kind of doesn't know what to do with it. And he, uh, I mean, he, he could have he gone, but part of the draw of him going was that his friends were going. And his girlfriend was going. And now they're staying. Mm-hmm. He was never going to go the minute that that piece of information is offered up. It would have been funny if he'd just gone, but he doesn't. But was not to be. We not- needed an excuse to get the school cleared out so that uh, we could have our, all, only our protagonists uh, and not pay for all those extras. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See that's like that's that is just so much so the reality of the situation. I feel like I'm I'm impossibly giving it too much credit by talking about it as this kind of like smart kind of savvy narrative device. But maybe it's both. And Jason takes Manhattan. You see the like the ship that they're on going to Manhattan re- really really early on, and it's absolutely fucking jam packed with people. There's hundreds of th- hundreds of people on there, mm-hmm. and then you're kind of you've got the same eight people for the rest of the film. You so you have to assume yeah. then that everyone else. Hundreds of people die on that boat. And they do have a throwaway line that it was like, oh, yeah, they were all in the mess hall and it flooded or something. So, yeah, I guess they did. But Massacre. Um, so some other yeah, yeah. really good stuff that starts coming in here is the is Laurie's backstory. Yeah. And we learn that she's keeping a lot of secrets, right? So she's keeping a secret. She's got the relationship with Adam Arkin, the guidance counselor, yeah. right, which is sort of a secret because they're professional colleagues. Mm-hmm. We have the secret that she has the past with Michael Myers, which she, you know, d- it seems like she doesn't share that with anyone outside of her and her son. Yep. And then her big secret is, you know, one of the ways she's dealing with her post-traumatic stress disorder is that she's an alcoholic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I ha- have always had and still have a lot of respect for that character work they did with that character and, 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 giving her so many different secrets that she's dealing with, but all rooted in her experience with Michael Myers 20 years prior. That I had not considered, but you're right. 
they do a lot of building on a kind of a fairly iconic character in a very short window of time in a way that feels fairly grounded and fairly convincing. Yes, like think think about the scene where she asks for the second glass of Chardonnay from the waiter, and he has that look where he clocks that she's already got one, and she says today. Yeah. <laughs> he brings yeah. her one. You know, it's it it just does feel very authentic. Yeah, absolutely yeah. spot on. No, I totally agree. Um, and on like obviously we're kind of like we're shooting through kind of like quite a lot of big character introductions. One yeah. of my favourites here, shortly after. Well, um, well, a character we haven't touched on at all is uh, Norma. Uh, Norma. Norma, the secretary. Yes. Played by yes. Jim Lee Curtis's Janet mother, Lee. Janet Lee, uh, who obviously, as we also going back to the name Marion, famously was Marion Crane in Psycho. Absolutely, and we have all kind of cool. Well, debatably cool in jokes here. We at one point yeah. she has the car that yep. she drove in Psycho, named after Norman Bates's mother. Yep, yep, absolutely. We hear some uh, notes from the Psycho theme there. Uh, I, she even has a line where she says, "Let me be maternal for a moment." <laughs> yeah, I love the uh, I love when the we the notes from Psycho come in. Yes, me I, too. Yeah, I think that's 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 a lovely little touch. And uh, yes. less obvious than the car and the name and all the other stuff. Right, right. Which some of that stuff, you know, this time watching it, I felt like it took me out of the narrative a little bit. Oh, I really? was seeing them wink too hard. You know, yeah. when her name was Norma, when, you know, when she said the thing about being maternal for a second, you know, I was like, I feel like maybe you're winking too hard at me and I'm not, I'm not watching a story. I'm watching... I'm watching you guys be meta right now. Yeah. Okay. That's we, that's fair. We know she was in Psycho. We don't need to be kind of bludgeoned with it. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I think like you've probably, like you've named maybe three or four three or four ways that they kind of touch on that, and maybe it's the kind of thing where all of those all of those things are kind of like fairly smart and fairly funny like touches on their own, but maybe you could have just chosen one. Yeah. Yes. Personally, I would have gone for the music cue because I thought that was awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. lovely. Um, but yeah, so, like we do meet um, LL Cool J's character just around this time. Uh, the school security guard yeah. is his position, I believe. One of my favorite kind of like running jokes and things they call back to in this is him kind of working in the office and re- and reading back the erotic fiction to his wife. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's writing. amazing. I thought it's hilarious. <laughs> It's a fun little run, and it, and it has a nice little arc. You know, it, it ends up uh, at the end that, you know, this experience has now informed his art and his career as a writer, and we can only assume that, you know, he's going to, that this next novel is going to be a success. Yeah, of course. Yeah, when he gets, he's, like, he's talking to his wife and he says that he's going to write, like, a sexy thriller. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So she is an incredibly strong black stereotype, the girlfriend on the phone. Um, she is like a, a bit like um, that's very that's very of its time though yeah, isn't it? a bit like Jada Pinkett and Scream 2 mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but she, I mean she sounds just like the old woman in the Tom and Jerry cartoons that's kind of how heavy it's mm. played doesn't sit the best mm-hmm. to me like yeah I, I, I feel you I feel you I think it's about like I say I think I think that's one of those things where it's like if it if that occurred in a film in 2018 you would call it but I think when you're watching it for something in 1998 you kind of like you make a little bit of a concession for the fact that a lot of those kind of characters hit those kind of beats pretty hard. <laughs> right, right. And in fact, in that behind-the-scenes doc I mentioned, the reason that LL Cool J's character existed is that it was all market research. They had done market research that African-American audiences really 
responded to the character of Michael Myers. So they created an African-American character. Um, and hopefully, although who knows, but hopefully today, you know, we're, we're, we're not responding to marketing research in that way and in, in, in our art. But maybe maybe people still are, but hopefully not. Yeah, no, I, I, like, <laughs> I, ideally, you'd hope, ideally you'd hope not, yeah. I think that Adam Arkin is doing a lot of good stuff in this film. Does, does he remind anyone else of George Clooney? Preston? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like a, a softer, paunchier George Clooney. Yes. <laughs> yes. But yes, for sure. Like, he's your dad and George Clooney's your sexy uncle that comes around riding yeah. a motorbike. <laughs> That's a great comparison. <laughs> and a totally unexpected use of the expression sexy uncle. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you never know what you're going to get here. Yeah, I think, like, when, when you see her kind of interacting with him and... Um, you can kind of see in ways that aren't obvious to him that she's kind of obviously incredibly haunted by the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that in ways he won't fully understand until uh, until later. And um, it's around this time as well that she has this kind of like extended altercation with John, Josh Hartnett, kind of in the street uh, after they've kind of yes. snuck out and things. And I think that, again, you get a kind of like, you get a reasonable grounding in their relationship at this point because it's like, I mean, I think it's kind of alluded to first time around when they're, argu- when they're arguing, they're considerably more on the nose in this one about the fact that he is very aware of the fact that what had happened to her 20 years previous is informing her parenting and therefore his life in a way that he's finding really kind of problematic mm-hmm. and i i've just this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie i think jamie lee is a movie star for a reason and she's just doing such good work in that scene that we believe it we see both sides it, 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 it it's a tough situation that she's dealing with and we feel for them both yeah i think that i think that um uh the john uh josh harnett stuff here is really good as well because he's being really over dramatic from again, if you're watching this back with an adult's head on, he looks like he's being really melodramatic. I wrote down that he's like, "Oh, I can't live like this," kind of thing. But it's, <laughs> but it's, but I, like it's it's probably like a fairly solid bit of kind of teen character stuff. Oh yeah, it's mm-hmm. very very angsty, very very stroppy, very accurate. Yeah, that was very much what I was like. Yep, I'm me too. Still am, still am. So, so sorry, mum. <laughs> So it's around here that we kind of we get the kind of scene setting for the Halloween party and stuff at this point, don't we? Like, yeah, everything's going well at this point until I heard the music of Creed. <laughs> oh man! Okay, so uh, I will defend a lot of things about this movie. <laughs> but... I think we've just gotten to the br- what we say as a bridge too far. Yeah, this... I cannot. I cannot, in good conscience, say that. Uh, the music of Creed is uh, a welcome addition to the Halloween franchise. Or twice. Or, or anything. <laughs> it's worth noting, not once, but twice. Yep, yep. And a um, big ch- I think they play that whole song over the closing credits. So, which, oh boy. Which baffles me, because they play the whole song and then you get about 20 seconds of that really awesome reworking of the Halloween theme. Mm-hmm, when they could have mm-hmm. just blasted that out over the whole thing. But yep. I, yep. Again, that's that's a, it's a time and time it's, thing. It's, it's, yeah, it's play, it's playing into the kind of the slashers you were getting at the time. Yeah, I believe it's Sid- like if, if if this had been made in two thousand and three or something, it would have been Static X. I think Sydney Prescott <laughs> has a Creed poster in her bedroom. Oh man, that's wow. no good. Um, if I remember correctly, a lot of things no I like good. about Sydney Prescott. Sydney Prescott, but her taste in alt rock, not so much. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> Um, one other thing to mention here is the classroom scene 
which is sort of a callback to the original Halloween yes, classroom yes. scene, where they articulate using a piece of literature, they articulate the theme of this movie. And, yes. you know, they say that Victor should have confronted the monster sooner. And, and, and you know, this is something that I, we see fairly often in movies. We saw just earlier this year in Hereditary, in fact, where a classroom scene, they're studying a, a, a novel, and they, they use that to articulate the themes of the movie that we're watching. I, I, I don't know if here it's as successful as it is in Halloween 1. I feel like in, in Halloween 1, the, you know, the idea of fate never changes mm-hmm. is a little bit there's something that's a little more open into to interpretation of how how you read that in Halloween one. Mm-hmm. Here we're pretty much spelling out exactly what this movie is about, being that you know Victor should have confronted the monster sooner, you know Laurie should have confronted Michael Myers sooner, you know. So a little on the nose for my taste in in this time watching it through, but uh, I'm curious to know what you guys think about that. Um, I, I, I did spot this. Yeah. Um, and I would be inclined to agree with you. I think that like um, and and you're right in in as much as like I think that not even kind of as well as just kind of a classroom scene where someone is going through a piece of literature that reflects the themes of the film you're watching, but also the use of the kind of someone seeing something untoward from a classroom window that's there then gone. Yeah. Like mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's super recurrent as well in a lot of the kind of slashers and horror films that followed afterwards because that got touched on obviously that um uh, it follows yeah use that things yep. like that. I also have a slight problem with the fact that it's uh, Jamie Lee Curtis delivering all this stuff. Mm. I know um, yeah she, she's clearly obviously she's some kind of teacher as well as being the headmistress or something I don't know yeah mm-hmm. but um, she I mean I, I think if it was just a teacher just some. Joe Schmo, some uh, like a mm-hmm. like, somebody mm-hmm. like a Lin Shay that they've drafted in to be this teacher, right? I would mm-hmm. have a lot mm-hmm. less of a problem with it, I think, than um, than it actually being Jamie Lee Curtis beating us over the yep. head, over the head with this metaphor. Yep. That's fair. Nice little nod to Young Frankenstein, though. Yes, um, when she so says Frankenstein, guys. Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing, uh, one thing that I did kind of start to find kind of irksome about this film as it went on <laughs> was um, uh, here we go. Uh, no, was, I, I think that like an awful lot of fake out jump scares. Mm. Yeah, like the yes. like the the fake the fake out to real ratio is possibly about three or four to one. I would yeah. say, and um, I think after a while that kind of started to wear on me a little bit. Yep, yep, and around this part, I also started to notice. The way they stage Michael Myers is not particularly scary. <laughs> Felt a number of times, especially when he was like sort of stalking around LL Cool J. Yeah. He would kind of like walk <laughs> under frame. He would like hit a mark, you know, and like the like the music would be scary for a second and LL would turn around and he would be gone. And then oh he would hit another mark. <laughs> It's... And the music would be scary, and it, it's very different than the way he's treated, especially in the original Halloween, where he's just sort of watching you. And yeah. the creepiness is that he's standing there watching you. Not he doesn't like hit a mark, you know, uh, and, and then we hit a scary cue when when the Michael Myers actor hits a mark. You know, it, there, it, there was something about that staging that just it didn't sit particularly well with me on this view i completely agree i um 
I didn't I didn't kind of uh, I didn't look at it alongside how they frame him in the first film, but you're hundred percent right. I think that well, half the reason of why he's so scary in the seventy eight film is because he's so kind of static and kind of like um and you kinda of get the impression that he's observing rather than stalking, and yeah. I think that is way scarier. But I actually had that written down in my notes as well, um, that I thought that this scene where he's uh, kind of stalking LL Cool J is actually like it's actually really funny, you know, because I was just well, like, like, like when he appears at two different windows in the same It's also it's not helped by the fact that LL Cool J is reading his book that he's writing to the to his girlfriend over the phone, and he's hitting out the lines like "I want to invade every part of your being," um, <laughs> and Michael's just kind of standing awkwardly looking in the window at him. Yeah, fair. It, it feels fair. it feels silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think yeah, I agree. I think that like I think that some of the ways that he's framed at a few different junctures in the film lack the kind of. F- ominousness and the kind of like the foreboding of what came before mm-hmm. he's also rocking two very slightly different masks oh yes so the mask man i i've seen so much controversy on the internet about the mask in this in this movie yeah i i guess they they really had a lot of problems uh figuring out uh, how to how to get that classic look it mm-hmm. fit differently on the actor's face the director had a different vision and at a certain point, the studio dis- – they had shot a bunch and the studio finally watched, caught up with watching the dailies and hated the mask. They had to change the mask partway through. And it does feel like they never really – in this movie, they never really get the mask right. And that's, that's, uh, that's a shame. It's not a, it's not a movie killer for me. I feel like for some people, it is, it, it's a cardinal sin that they can't get past. I, I agree it's, it's unfortunate – yeah. Um, but I'm willing to sort of just imagine the proper mask in my mind's eye when I <laughs> when I watch it. That's, that's also that's, as well. I mean, like about that, like I mean, like what's your take on that, Andy? Like, is that like is the mask inconsistency thing something that it's like the mask, how, how much does it take you out? It doesn't t- take me out of it. I, well, the mask inconsistency as it stands within the film, because there's clearly two different masks, mm. takes me out of it slightly. Mm-hmm. On the whole, if you look at part six, um, the mask's fucking terrible in part six. Yeah. Um, in fact, yeah. kind of part four, five, and six, the mask's fucking dreadful. Yeah. Um, yes. So this is for me on the whole is actually a step it's up and an improvement yeah. from on mm. those masks within the film. I find myself noticing the mask, but it doesn't. I'm not overly bothered by mm-hmm. it, but it, it's it's noticeable. I would say I'm probably in a similar boat. Um, I it's noticeable but it's not a problem and i think that like you say Preston, i think that it's also quite easy to just mentally substitute in the right thing yeah which, yeah which I, which I wouldn't advocate doing for like a multitude of sins but i think for something like this i think you can do that quite easily really yeah it takes yeah. a pretty meaty nosedive again in halloween resurrection um it does I, it in fact, sure does. everything takes a pretty big nosedive in halloween resurrection yeah we can, yeah, we can touch uh, on that at the end yeah, <laughs> towards can, the end of this we can get to that for sure <laughs> also um, another thing i like um another kind of call back to the original film sorry mitch another fake out jump scare uh involving norma this time when she delivers uh, sheriff brackett's line from the first film which is it's halloween everyone's entitled to one good scare i always think that's quite yeah. nice but again it's very blunt and I was struck by a, a, so many meta things that I was taken out of it. You know, there's they are watching Scream 2. That's and right, if you yeah. remember in Scream 1, they're watching Halloween 1. That's um, right. At one point, uh, Laurie says, drive down 
to the McKenzie's, or no, she says drive down the street to the Beckers, which is a reference to Scream 1, the name of Drew Barrymore's family, it was the Beckers, it was also a and in the scene in Scream 1, they say drive down the street to the McKenzie's, which is a reference to Halloween, it's like yeah. this huge circle of, of references and pointing at each other, which I start to feel like I'm out of it because I'm watching the references watching the movie. Was it only on this watch that that started to become a problem for you? I th- I think so. I think so. It, it, it like I think when I was when I watched it when I was younger, I was like, "Ooh, cool! Such a cool in joke. They're so <laughs> smart. It's so inside." And and now I think that my you know my palate has I matured. I don't know if that's the right yeah. word, but it has has I it has gotten older. I. I I find that the clever I'm not getting a jazz out of the cleverness mm-hmm. of of that and I'm find I'm finding it less clever as I get older I guess. I've got another one by the way. Oh yeah. Uh the little girl in the toilet cubicle earlier on is called Casey. And Drew Barrymore's character was Casey yeah. Becker. Casey Becker. Yeah. Yep. There we go. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Pretty important stuff incoming here which is when Laurie kind of like gives her real backstory and um kind of the truth about yeah her history and her affiliation with Michael Myers to uh, Adam Arkin's character. Um, I think it's an important scene to have in there, and uh, it's good to see how his character understands that and things, but the way it's presented is baffling to me. When it's kind of done in the middle of this kind of like... Uh, Things are getting kind of hot and heavy. An, an and introdu- picks... like, an, a, a kind of opener to coitus. Yeah, and then and then she kind of she kind of out of nowhere kind of like always like for some reason thinks that then is the time is right that then is the right time to kind of uh, get into this unbelievably harrowing story <laughs> about um, where she's come from and all these things that she's dealt with. And one th- that's going to throw cold water on the coals for sure. Absolutely, like... I think. But I think I think it's like it's a really really weird choice. Um, but I think that Adam Arkin does a reasonably good job with it. He plays it kind of tongue in cheek. He plays it with a bit of humor until she's pointedly saying to him, "I'm not fucking kidding here." Yeah, he's still... yeah. I, I it is an it is an odd way to stage that scene, you know, <laughs> I, I, because up to then we re- I, I I thought Adam Arkin was such a a well drawn character, but. Then his rea- the way he reacts, it's like I, I I know that she's being serious and he's not taking it seriously for so long, and we're like, wait a minute, is he actually an asshole? And yeah, it's 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 odd. I'm not gonna lie, it's odd. Yeah, I I, I, I think it's it's one of, it's one of the only moments in there that I found kind of like out and out kind of baffling. It's very dismissive. Um, he he yeah. seems very focused on what they were there to do. But t- to be fair, it's but from from Laurie's side of it, it's an it's it's a weird time. It's a weird time to do that, and I think that oh, like, for sure. you know, put yourself in his shoes. It's like I mean, I would be kind of baffled by it, but I'd be like, is this a is this is this part of it? I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now, if you're listening, you might be thinking, I thought this was a fucking slasher film, and we've not talked about really anyone dying for a, probably about half an hour. You get a good kind of you get a hot streak. Yeah. You get two pretty quick back to back deaths, and I think they're pretty good. Yeah. I I really like the the tension around the um, uh, the the corkscrew set piece, and then the the moment with the dumb waiter when the when yeah. when Michael cuts the the cord of the dumb waiter and grabs her leg, and and the the makeup there is re- you really feel it, you know. Yeah, the the leg break when uh, the dumb waiter falls on her leg as she's kind of trying to get out from underneath 
Charlie, whose whose corpse is in the dumb waiter. I was going to say just uh, yeah, just for clarity, this is these are the deaths of Charlie and Sarah. Charlie and Sarah, yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, Sarah's death's horrific. I think. Um, I think it's 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 my favorite one in there. I think, but I think that yeah, the the dumb waiter sequence and the aftermath of the injury is really really horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, now about around here is where we have something that really struck me this time. Okay. okay. Uh, so. In that scene, when 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 Laurie confesses everything to Adam Arkin, mm-hmm. she she tells part of the backstory is Michael Myers, as a boy, killed my older sister mm-hmm. when she was seventeen. Yes. Okay. Then Adam Arkin says, "Well, how old were you when he came after you?" And she says, "I was seventeen. Then this." makes a little light bulb go off in Laurie's head. She yeah, sees the birthday card for her son that he's also 17 and that what that's what makes her kick into high gear and go Michael is coming. Yeah. So just just for a second I want to articulate very clearly the narrative pill that they're asking us to swallow here. <laughs> and that narrative pill is this <laughs> that Michael Myers uh-huh. has an internal clock <laughs> and when Anyone he's related to turns the age of 17, <laughs> he says, I'm going to kill that person. That is, the, that, is, that, is what, that is the idea that they're putting forward, is that he has some sense that tells him when his relatives turn 17, he's going to kill them. Let, I, I just want to take a step back here, right? Go away back to Marion's house, back to Dr. Loomis's room in Marion's house, uh-huh. right? Yeah. The Laurie Strode file has been stolen uh-huh. by Michael. Yeah, it's a medical report, presumably yeah. about her mental state, what mm-hmm. she's up to. Yep. Surely it would in no way include the date of birth of her son, who Michael has never met, presumably doesn't know anything about. Couldn't pick out from a lineup. No way. No. That is this. That is just such a good observation, purely from the perspective of the fact that when that happened. And she was like <gasps> seventeen. I was like, oh my god! And I just did that. Yeah, like I just like like when you're asking about like the narrative pill to swallow, I swallowed it immediately and without question, and now I feel quite foolish. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing: I swallowed it for 19 years without question, <laughs> and until this most recent viewing, I said, "Wait a minute," because it's, 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 it's an arbitrary so it's an arbitrary thing as well because it's not like. It's happening in seventeen year cycles. Like Laurie had John when she was seventeen, so now now it's seventeen years later he'll be turning seventeen. It's none of that. Like, no, nope. absolutely nope. none of that. There's no rhyme or reason or sense to nope. to it at all. It makes more sense from for John to be incidental, incidentally involved rather than the kind of driving force in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Really good shot. One of the best shots in the film. Incoming here. I absolutely agree. Uh, um, the the bit with the gate, um, where they're kind of behind the gate and Michael's swishing the knife through. Yeah. And the yeah. 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 That's kind of the iconic shot of the whole film. When um, when you're talking about when he comes through the gate and he and Laurie land face to face with that with that window, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. On a, yeah. on a, on either side of the pane of glass. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is awesome. I, I have nothing but awesome things to say about that. I think that that is one hundred percent. I think that the like the most visually satisfying moment in the film. As a fan of the franchise, that's the moment out out with the first film. That's the moment in the franchise to date. Um, yeah, it's all completely fucked and, and undone uh, in the next film again. But 
of, yeah. of course. So to me, that's what kicks off. Now, now we're in Act Three. That that is the moment that sort of kicks us into Act Three territory. Agreed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, um, I, I really dig it. Like it, it, it it's a fun Act Three for, for me. You know, the moment of like Michael coming down from the pipe. Yeah, he's um, got incredible upper body strength. He does. He does. <laughs> like that's uh, some severe extreme core workout stuff. Yep, um, yep. That's what he's been doing the last twenty years. Yeah, man. No, that's yeah, right though. That's like, but it's 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 a really good moment when he like drops down from behind her. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, conservatively, ten or twelve inch blade. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um. But yeah, like so. There's there's like um a decent amount of hunt and chase stuff going on here, and mm-hmm. this is a lot of the time. I think in slashers, this is the kind of point where these things kind of tend to get away from me a little bit. And I don't think it particularly happened here. I think that there's enough kind of, like, um, twists and turns on there that I thought this was still pretty engaging. Including um, uh, Adam Arkin accidentally shooting LL Cool J. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, like, grounded, authentic, unfortunate. Um, uh, I know some people take issue with the fact that LL Cool J doesn't actually die from, from that. But, he never you know. dies. He never dies in anything. Yeah, I even, mean he's he's too cool to die. Even in deep blue, <laughs> even in deep blue sea, he's back at the end. He's fine, right? I, yeah, I, th- I think that this is all pretty well done. Like you say, obviously, like yeah, he's presumed dead and obviously reappears. Um, and then you kind of get another kind of another kind of big individual moment where you see um, Laurie having the chance to escape. Yeah. And ah, kind of- yes, yes. And and they're all ready to go. And Michelle Williams says, "Miss Tate, come on." And you just see the bad at you know she she realizes this is the moment she has to she's been running from for twenty years she has to face him, and I just love her performance I love what the music does there to put us in her head I love her you know shutting the gate breaking it closed with the rock and it's right. just like Laurie versus Michael she she screams she keeps screaming his name over as well, over and over as well trying to get his right. attention yes. Yeah. Yes. Also, by this point, Adam Arkin's dead. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yeah. Right. He's yeah. he's blew right past that, yeah. didn't we? Fucking hell. He's pretty unceremoniously offed. Absolutely. Uh, it's a very it's a it's a super satisfying moment though. Very <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then so this is kind of all leading to your kind of final face off uh, between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you've, you've kind of got like a little bit more kind of hunt and chase, the hiding under the tables kind of thing. Ultimately, she gets the better of him. Principally by stabbing him with a flagpole. Yep. Which is yep. like a pretty good stuff. Uh, also manages to kind of use that as a kind of vehicle, throw him out of a window, stabs him multiple times. And then I think it's uh, it's funny that like the recurrence of LL Cool J when he reappears is actually to discourage the double tap method the, <laughs> to make sure that. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. He comes back and he's like, he's dead, he's dead. He's like, well, just. Let her check. She needs this. Yeah, right. Give her this moment. She needs it. Right. And then this is this is another thing that I love because it's a turning on the head and a twisting of expectations because the next scene right after that is a scene that we've seen so many times in slasher movies. Friday 2. Uh, Friday 3, I think. You know, the Steve Miner ones. Uh, Friday 7. It, it, we see like the denouement of now the cops have all arrived. Yeah. The final girls being let off, you know, and it's like it, it, always in those movies, it is the last beat, and we see the the ambulances drive off, and the movie's over. But not in this movie. No, no, no. We Fair, yeah, that, yeah. 
Uh, you know, and in, in, and we think that it's going that way, but Laurie knows better. And she does that awesome moment when she threatens, like, the paramedics with a gun and yeah. drives away with Michael's supposed corpse in the back of the corner van. Yes. Absolutely committing multiple felonies in the process. <laughs> um, yep, yep. But, but she needs it to complete her arc, you know, to, yeah, absolutely. to face this demon. And yeah. she, and while she's driving, she knows that it's inevitable that he's going to come back. Um, and she's watching, yes. the, she's watching in the rearview mirror, watching the body bag which contains Michael and a knife. They've, they, they seem to always do this in things. They, uh, they bury or they take these killers away. It happened when we, way, way back in episode one when we did Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. I oh. commented on why they would bury Jason. And even in a dream sequence, why they would bury Jason with two machetes, with two machetes and his mask on. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, and it's the same thing here. You would take that away. That would get in a, put in a plastic bag, and that would be taken away. That would be carted off as evidence. Yeah, there, it, there it is to hand though. And inevitably, yeah, like uh, he does reanimate. Reanimate. Yeah. Air quotes. Yeah. Reanimates. I find the f- when he's trying to get out of that body bag very, very funny. <laughs> huh? It never bo- that never bothered me actually. Every time I see it, it makes me giggle. It, <laughs> I see that, yeah. Huh. Like, I, I, I could have cut like, out. That would have been, I think, a better oh, visual. Yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah, but um, but she, yeah, she eventually she slams the brakes on and kind of like propels him out the window. Mm-hmm. And then, in an attempt to uh, in a, an attempt to kind of run him over, rolls the ambulance over the edge of the hill face. Well, just before that, I really like the bit where she, where he's lying on the ground and she's saying, "Move, get up, get up." And then he kind of sits up like the Undertaker and kind of stumbles to his feet. I really like that bit. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Because she it's knows so hardcore. That, yeah, she knows he's always going to get up. He's always going to keep getting back up. See, because yep. because we're kind of walking through this sequence and kind of really looking at the kind of bones of it, they do a lot of really good individual moments for kind of really driving home how much of a kind of like crucial standoff this is for her. Yeah. It's, yeah. ruined, it's ruined the whole life and her son's life and and you know and now adam arkin's life it's you know it's poisoned yeah. a lot of thi- that one night of her life poisoned a lot of things and now yeah. she has to deal with but it but even before yeah. that yeah. even before that when she was two years old her sister was murdered by her brother she was taken into care she was put, uh, adopted away so it has affected her whole life since birth that's right and I think that yeah, I think the film does a pretty good job of constantly keeping you in mind of how high the stakes are. Mm-hmm. I think, and again, this isn't something that I hadn't really I had really considered until we started talking about this in kind of real detail. But I think that it, yeah, it does that pretty well. And um, yeah, so eventually, yeah, she hits him and rolls the ambulance down the hill face, and um, you get your kind of your final moment. Yeah, your final moments, should I say? And of course, that final moment being that she, he reaches out towards her like, uh, like he's asking for help. Yeah, he's, she, pinned, he's pinned to a tree. He's pinned to a tree. He's pinned to a tree by by yeah, the ambulance. by the van. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the, and yeah. presumably his like spine is broken. You know, he's he's barely clinging to life, and he reaches out towards her, and it seems for a second like she's she feels empathy for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But instead, she takes the axe and chops off his head. Yep. Yeah, and 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 so it is left. Pretty much, yep. you get the, you get her there, um, head bouncing away, and then you get the kind of Shiro final shot of her. She's done it. She's buried this creature that's destroyed her whole life, and that's that. 
And then Can you imagine if that if the saga had ended there. Oh no, it's per- yeah, that's a perfect dead. way to end it. Perfect way to end it. Wouldn't that have been amazing if they if they just left it go? Yep. Yeah, if they just called it there. If they'd ended it there and they'd taken Creed out of the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that that was the last of Michael Myers. I I take it. But I don't think we can stop here without touching on the fact that all of this is completely undone by Halloween Resurrection. Um, yes. Yeah. So, Preston, just for background, um, I hadn't seen Halloween Resurrection. and I You watched, hadn't seen I, this? No. This is the first watch both of them were. But, after, but basically, I watched this with Andy, and then I took his copy of Halloween Resurrection home with me and effectively double-billed them in the same evening. Aha! All um, right. And, You're uh, on you. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> um, uh, and, yeah, um, I... I but I will we'll come to where I ended up on uh, Halloween H2O. Halloween Resurrection, I find quite infuriating. One of the reasons for that is I think that it, in such a throwaway fashion, undoes so much of the more convincing narrative work that this film does. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I remember, uh, uh, you know, Entertainment Tonight or something ran a piece on, on Halloween H2O and there was a quote from Jamie Lee Curtis where she said, you know, they said, would you come back for another one? And she said, not for all the money in the world. This is it for me. And, it, <laughs> you know, it turns out that that was probably, uh, you know, subterfuge, that it was in her contract that, that she would have to, if they made another one, come back for a prologue. Yeah. And, and it really, you know, it really does undo everything. Her death is 10 minutes into the movie after a three-movie run, a three-movie epic run, the way that she is dispatched by him is just so disappointing um i i mean i will say there is a cleverness to the way that they bring back michael you know that it, what you know how do you come back from the head chop off right you know yeah and, do you and think, there is a cleverness to that but do you think it's not worth you, it no no it's not no i agree yeah, yeah do you think or do you know if that was already the plan so in that documentary they basically mustafa akkad said the, the the creative team said we want to kill Michael Myers. That's what that's how we want this to culminate. And Mustafa Akkad said, "You can't kill Michael Myers. He's my cash cow." You know. Right. <laughs> and so supposedly Kevin Williamson came up with this solution, where they where he said, "This is we will stage it in such a way that if you want to make another one, you can show that this that he switched places with a paramedic." Right. Okay. So, so supposedly they had it in mind at the time of H2O. Okay, so yeah, it wasn't made in the knowledge there would be another one, but it was made to accommodate the possibility of another one. Correct. Right. Correct. And, uh, I know you mentioned that this uh, Halloween H2O came out around the time that the, the kind of internet was kicking off, but Halloween Resurrection is an incredibly internet-savvy film. Right, right, it is. At the time when it was just going off the charts. And it was four. It was four years later. It was two thousand two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know the same the same year that brought us Jason X, brought us <laughs> Halloween Resurrection. Yes, I am. Uh, yes. I I think that I, I mean I don't want I don't want to dig too much into Halloween Resurrection, but I think that it plays so much like a film from two thousand and two. Like the references now are mm-hmm. really funny. Like I feel like so like you know, obviously it's all based around kind of like shooting this kind of like slightly real world type show, and they talk about how it's going to be like bigger than the Osbournes. Yeah, but it's it's in, it's in the Myers house. Yes. 
Doesn't it? Right. Doesn't it so, say yeah. in the in the Miles house? I think so. Yeah, yeah. But like, I think like, um, but I think a lot of things about that film are really maddening. Like, I think like going to the trouble of bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis and just like you say, dispatching over in one such a kind of like, like so quick, so early into the film, but in such a kind of bland throwaway kind of way is a bit of a slap in the face to some of the hard, like to a lot of the hard work that came before it. Absolutely, it is. Um. I, you know, I think in a vacuum, there are some fun and entertaining aspects of Halloween Resurrection, but as a sequel to Halloween H2O, as a continuation of the Laurie Strode timeline, it is, I think frustrating is the word that I would use as well that you used yeah. just a minute ago. And I mean, and I think that, again, we were talking about this in advance, um, we can't round out this conversation without talking about what's about to happen next, and obviously we've got halloween uh 2018 coming out in a couple months yeah and andy as you pointed out this it's going to function as a direct sequel to the original it's effectively going to wipe the slate clean yeah um what's your take on that um i am really fascinated to see what happens because i i am such a huge fan of of continuity and and bringing back so, okay, have you ever heard this this little 30-second Seinfeld bit where he's talking about Americans who are rooting for sports teams? Mm-hmm, and his okay. point is, you know, the players change all the time. Yeah. The managers change all the time. When you're rooting for a sports team, you're pretty much rooting for the clothes. That's right, yeah. I'm a, <laughs> okay. massive, I'm a massive Seinfeld fan, so that, That's, uh, yeah, LA. I know exactly what you're talking so about. So you know that, right? Yeah. So I feel like in a lot of these, you know, in Friday the 13th and Halloween in particular, we have so many changeovers in the creative teams, in the looks of the film, in the actors playing the the slasher. Mm-hmm. Like, are we pretty much rooting for the mask? You know, is that is that what we're rooting for? To me, I, I, I don't feel that way. And I root for the human characters more than anything else. Okay. And so... That's why I love this as a trilogy, H1, H2, and H2O as a trilogy where it's about Jamie Lee's relationship with this mask, right? Yeah, right. Um, okay, so knowing that I'm such a huge fan of that, so now this new movie is asking me to say none of that happened. And uh, what, you know, the buzz is, is that the take of the filmmakers on this new movie is so utterly compelling that it is worth saying that none of all none of those things existed, and it remains to be seen if that's true or not. I I can say this: I will be there on opening night. Oh, same. Yeah, me hoping, too. Me too. And I will be hoping to be blown away. Yeah, I, I've a, I've a, I've mentioned before on this show. I've got a little bit of a problem with kind of just wiping the slate clean and um, going off on your own tangent and creating your own kind of canon. But yeah, I'm very much like what Preston just said. I will, and I said this when we talked about it. I will absolutely see it. And I agree. I think as well. I mean, you'll see it in the hope of being blown away. But I agree with you as well that I think that sometimes when something spawns multiple sequels and there's this kind of general acceptance of the fact that some of them aren't so hot kind of thing. I think that much rather than wipe the slate clean, I think I would, I'd like, I think it's more interesting to see people make compelling films and and like from the kind of difficult circumstances of having to work your way out of sequels that aren't as good and sequels that maybe yeah. narratively yeah. aren't as interesting. I think that that's harder work than starting a new. And I think that that's why I would 
probably find that more interesting. Yes, agreed, agreed. Something just this year that did it amazingly well was uh, this show Cobra Kai. Oh, yeah. Which was a sequel to the Karate Kid movies, right? Right. And, uh, you know, Karate Kid 2 and to a greater extent Karate Kid 3 are not the greatest entries in that in that <laughs> canon. Right. And yet that sequel Excuse does me, not so. ignore them. <laughs> uh oh! Sorry. <laughs> um, it, it honors all of those things, but forges its own path. And that, you know, that was—I know—that was a needle, a narrative needle to thread. And mm-hmm. they did it beautifully. I these filmmakers have chose chosen to go a different way. We'll see. Yeah, and I mean, I, I like I say, I think that yeah, what we all have in common about it is that we'll all go see it, and we'll all hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mitch, just mentioned a second ago that perhaps some of the films in the franchise aren't particularly aren't particularly great where did you come down in halloween h2 um preston what i would say is that this is one of the more convincing pitches that we've had on the show yeah oh I... in my opinion i would say that okay um i like i i thought that this was i i, I think that this film i thought that this film was fine i think that you've emphasized a lot of the hard work that it does to uphold certain things and a lot of the ways that it kind of had to respond to the way that slashers were changing post scream to kind mm-hmm. of subtract people's expectations and by its nature it had to be a little smarter than your average and i think that that's probably something that i didn't necessarily give it credit for on first viewing so i would say that honestly i would say that this is one of the best sells that we've had i from my point of view anyway i would say that i have taken a lot out of this nice there you go andy and what about Andy? Yeah, <laughs> I find Halloween H two a little bit bland. Um, mm-hmm. Even even among the kind of the other slasher films that Dimension were putting out around about the same time, same writers. Um, I feel that Halloween H two O struggles to keep up with them in any in any real way, and it's only these moments between Jamie Lee and Michael I think that elevate it at all. Mm-hmm. I, th- I find it quite humdrum. Yeah, I, I I see I see I see the point of view. I see it. I understand it more now than I did before upon this revisit. I guess just for me, it, it is that that Jamie Lee arc that yeah. I guess I apologize for so much for so much of that blandness with her. I guess yeah, yeah absolutely. And and that's and that's totally fair as well. I mean, I think that like I think that maybe and again now you've said it and now you've kind of and we've kind of framed the discussion from that angle. I think that a lot of it, a lot of what you take out of it kind of rides on exactly how much stock you put in that and how it handles that for sure and for i sure. think and i think that yeah you're you're right i mean and, and it's interesting to hear you say that on this rewatch you know you spotted a couple of things that kind of that hadn't bothered you before that did but i suppose that if something is if that element of it if you think that that's well handled and that's what you're really there for then it can kind of hide a multitude of sins yeah right right yeah. Go, going back um to what we said earlier about what could have been before Jamie Lee Curtis signed on. To me personally, after part six and Paul Rudd, I've got real, I've got no real desire to particularly see another another uh, Halloween sequel because it's going to be largely the same. So I think, and I certainly have no desire to see a straight to DVD dimension film like they did with the, the Hellraiser films. But mm-hmm. um, I think that this was the best road they could have taken, and I think in that regard, it absolutely works. I just wish they hadn't made another one. Absolutely, absolutely. Preston, before we wrap up, I want to take a little minute to talk about uh, Ruin Me. Yes, sir. 
which uh, is available now in the UK. I believe it's uh, it's built as a Shutter exclusive. Um, it's it's mm-hmm. available now, and I think that was as of I believe the end of July. Uh, yep, uh, July nineteenth in the US, August 9th in the UK. Oh, thank oh you. right, thank so you. it's there only been go. it's there only go. been like a week then. Um, uh, oh, time. Um, what I would say is we met. No, I didn't. We meet. Sorry, I apologize. I was at the screening. Uh, awesome. I was at Fright Fest over at me, and I'm, uh, I had a great time with it. I haven't had a chance to revisit it yet. I'm looking forward to doing that. But um, yeah, um, so like I say, it's available now, and it's a, a very new arrival in the UK. So if you want to take a sec to talk about it and just kind of let let the listeners know a little bit about it, now's the time. Yeah, so uh, Ruin Me is my first feature film as a director. I co-wrote it with uh, Trista Bissett, who's been my screenwriting partner for a number of years. And we set out to make um, a horror drama Mm -hmm. that uh, is masquerading in the trappings of a slasher film. Right. So uh, Ruin Me begins in in many ways uh, in the way that uh, that slasher films begin with a character with a group of characters who are set up to go to an isolated setting, which is this uh, extreme haunted event they've signed up for called Slasher Sleepout. Yep. Um, but once they're out there, things begin to go wrong, and we start to question if Slasher Sleepout is uh, a game or if there is something more going on. And what we were really passionate about with Ruin Me was doing this all through the lens of a single single character. Sort of our, our final girl is announced in the first frame of the movie as being our protagonist, and every every event in the film is experienced through her point of view. And uh, the the as her as she gets deeper and deeper into slasher sleepout, her uh, uh, the drama of what's unfolding becomes more and more personal to her. And that and 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 that's the movie that's ruined me. And it, it's it's something that I'm really excited and proud of. We did world premiere at Fright Fest last year, and I'm so happy to be on Shutter as a Shutter exclusive. I think the right eyeballs will discover us there. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah. And uh, I just I uh, it is my number one desire for people to go in um, understanding that it is uh, uh, a slasher in some ways, but also a horror drama in other ways. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's a really smart film. I had a great time with it. I recommend it to everyone listening. I thought, go check that out. Awesome. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you very much. Uh, Preston, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Hell yeah. Awesome. So just before you go, oh, um, yeah. where can people get in touch with you? How can people follow you and follow developments? Absolutely. And what, so, do, you, uh, what do you have coming up? Yeah, we're 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 really active on Twitter, at RuinMeMovie on Twitter. I'm at PrestonDEF on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to be working on the second season of a show called Manhunt uh, uh, coming up. And uh, Tristan and I have written another horror film that uh, we are just finishing the script now. And we're going to be putting it together over the fall to hopefully shoot next year. And that is called After the Summer. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. And hopefully I'll see you guys back at Fright Fest one of these days. I'm so jealous you're going this year. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, Preston, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Hell yeah, guys. Thank you, man. That guy knows his stuff. Yeah, I feel like a bit of a doofus. <laughs> but that's okay. It's not the first time. Won't be the last. I was gonna say no. It's, it's yeah. It's it's a very familiar feeling for me as well. But um, <laughs> uh, no, Preston DeFrancis of Ruin Me fame, uh, stopping by, and I would say making a hearty defense of Halloween H two O, but also just yeah, uh, flexing yeah. some real knowledge bustle in the process. Yeah, yeah. It was energetic, and I like that. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, he like he 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 came in ready, <laughs> yeah. which I always appreciate. So we're just about done for another one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But a big thank you to Preston for joining us, and of course, um, a big thank you to you guys for listening. And don't forget that uh, you can check out Ruin Me now in the UK. Yep. Um, on Shudder as of August 9th um, and uh, July 19th I believe you said I think it might have been uh, yeah. yeah so it's basically bit... it's there it's there that's all we need to know now yeah. the, the dates are inconsequential now it's there it's very true yeah 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 um, but you know get on it it's a, it's a good film it's worth your time and uh, yeah hopefully uh, when the time comes we'll maybe see him again yeah that'd be great so it's time for us to go, I guess. But if you want to get in touch, um, you can do. You can get in touch on Facebook and Instagram. That's Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can also tweet us at Strong Violent PC or email Scenes at gmail.com. Yes, absolutely. And however you're listening, there might be better ways to do that. Uh, and you can hear us at Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. And if you do listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and rate and review because it really does help us a lot. So, um, don't forget that at the time of listening... Yeah. This is going out on a Friday morning. It's going out on a Friday morning, so... Well, I'm at Fridefest. <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at work. That's <laughs> very true. But I'm on the way. I'm coming down. I'm yeah, just... and uh, on that note, we will both be at Fridefest this weekend. And uh, we're currently in the process of figuring out... We will we'll be back on Monday. Yeah, yeah. With just... a mini-sode. We're just kind of figuring out the logistics of that. Yeah, but we would definitely put a mini-sode on Monday somehow... Uh, to whatever level of quality, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> yeah, I just want to preface uh, this by saying that the mo- yeah. the mini that comes your way on Monday morning might be slightly erratic. Yeah, also uh, adjust your expectations given that there tends to be a fair amount of drinking done at Fright Fest. Oh, wow, I had not considered that. That is fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but one way or another, by hook or by crook, we'll be back Monday morning, 8 a.m. BST. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, if you want to stay handcuffed to your dead brother, that's fine, but you're not dragging me along. Good night. (laughs) Good night. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean. 